Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum on the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. It's founded on the core belief that each and every person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're currently listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2022, held from the 31st of October to the 4th of November, with both live events and pre-recorded contributions that discuss how peace is possible. For more content just like this, join the conversation at genevapeaceweek.ch. Hi, everyone. I'm joined today by Dr. Giudita Fontana, Associate Professor at the University of Birmingham, and Dr. Ilaria Maciero, Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the University of Geneva. They've joined me today to discuss their research on the reputational effect of cultural reforms and peace agreements. Can you tell me both a bit about your background and your research interests? Thank you for having us here. I'm Dr. Judita Fontana, and I'm based at the University of Birmingham. And my main area of research and research interest is in war to peace transitions, and in particular on how institutions like education and culture feed into the transition out of civil wars around the world. And that's how I became interested in how these institutions are incorporated into peace agreements and also in how they might help the resilience of peace agreements. There's very, very little research on how culture, education, language are framed in peace accords. And previously there was really no global level data which is why with some colleagues at the University of Birmingham, we decided to create a global data set of political agreements in internal conflicts, which captures these aspects of peace accords, looking at about 290 accords between 1989 and 2017. But my approach to the research previously had always been very much qualitative and case studies based. So the creation of this data set started getting me more interested in mixed method approaches and in the way that we can identify broader patterns in how certain types of reforms are incorporated in peace accords and what their impact is over the long term, which is why I then approached Ilaria because of her particular expertise and to try and think about ways of working together. Yeah, so hello, thank you for having us here. Uh, I'm Dr. Ilaria Maziero from the University of Geneva. Uh, I'm an applied microeconomist specializing in low-end economics, language economics, and development. So more in general, I investigate policy-relevant issues using the economics reasoning and toolbox. Uh, at the moment, I'm taking a closer look at language, which is in fact one of the features of cultural reforms that we are investigating in the study we are discussing here today. And uh, in my current project with Professor Francois Grand at the University of Geneva, we try to estimate the actual economic value of plurilingualism for individuals and societies. Uh, so as you can see, then typically I work with variables that are not strictly speaking economic variables. 
So uh, really what I bring to the table <laughs> is the, my database and um, quantitative approach to study topics across various domains, which of course makes it crucial for me to collaborate with scholars such as Dr. Fontana, who are actual experts in the field in which I'm diving. So I would say the value of collaboration across disciplinary backgrounds cannot be overstated. In the context of peace accords, what kind of issues usually come under cultural reforms? That, that, that's a really, really interesting question because the idea of cultural reforms is a very, very broad concept. And this is a question that we often get whenever we're presenting our work. Ultimately, cultural reforms are any reforms that impact on the way that certain cultures might be expressed in a given society. But obviously, whenever we sit down and start working on a specific project or paper or book, we need to define these concepts a little bit more narrowly and precisely. So in the, the paper and in our future projects, we will probably stick with the definition of cultural reforms as reforms of institutions engaging in the protection, reproduction or dissemination of some aspects of culture. And this really embodies uh, seven sets of uh, institutions, uh, education, which uh, in the case, for example, of uh, our case study also includes the language of education, um, symbols uh, such as flags uh, and uh, emblems, uh, the media, museums, uh, cultural activities, uh, sports and uh, cultural associations. So these are the seven kinds of institutions that we look at. And we came to this definition both by reading the literature, but also by reading the different peace agreements. So uh, this definition really encompasses uh, a lot of what is touched upon by the peace accords themselves. So in terms of how these uh, types of reforms might look in the peace agreements, we have uh, a whole variety and range of, uh, um, of examples. But in the paper, as well as in our research, we are using uh, the case study of Northern Ireland, where the reform to encourage and facilitate Irish, Irish medium education is a, a good example of cultural reform within um, the Good Friday Agreement, which was then ultimately picked up in the St. Andrews Agreement eight years later. In other places, such as, for example, Bosnia and Herzegovina, you might have the creation of specific commissions. Um, in the case of Bosnia and Herzegovina, you have, for example, a commission to preserve national monuments that was created by the Dayton Agreement. In Lebanon's Taif Agreement in 1989, you have uh, some reforms of the media that are ostensibly aiming to facilitate the end of the civil war. So it's uh, quite a broad breadth of reforms and a broad uh, breadth of different institutions that are being tackled. But the basic concept at the heart of uh, um, our definition is the fact that these institutions are really engaging in protecting, reproducing or disseminating the cultures of uh, the local population. And given that there's been limited research in this area, how common is it for cultural reforms to be included in peace agreements? Yeah, actually, it's surprisingly common, considering, as you said, how marginalized they are in the literature. 
So uh, to give you a number, figure, 41% of the political agreements that we analyzed contain some reform of institutions engaging in the protection, reproduction, or dissemination of aspects of culture, which is our definition of cultural reforms. To give you an idea, this is the same proportion of agreements containing power-sharing provisions, and yet... These latter types of agreements are uh, much more systematically studied in the literature. In your research, you've differentiated between accommodationist and integrationist approaches to cultural reforms. Can you explain the differences between these two approaches? Right. So, yeah, we we did uh, differentiate between these two approaches and the differences uh, um, draw back on a lot of the literature on conflict management, which uh, over the past uh, 40 years or so has been debating the relative benefits of accommodating uh, um, versus transcending separate group identities in countries that are emerging from civil wars. So we're thinking about literature going all the way back to Horowitz and Gar. Um, So on the basis of that literature and on the continuing debate in the field, we had a hunch that perhaps there were different approaches in the way that culture might be tackled in peace accords and that perhaps these different approaches could lead to a different impact on the resilience and success of peace processes. So when we started coding our data set, uh, particularly for um, this uh, project, we differentiated between these two types of approach to cultural reform. And uh, we are drawing on definitions by McGarry and O'Leary to define accommodationist approaches as those uh, reforms that try to ensure that each group has a public space necessary for it to express its identity. So in a way, they carve out uh, space for the public expression of uh, identities through certain uh, cultural expressions. For example, the Albanian language uh, university education being funded officially by the state following North Macedonia's uh, 2001 accord. On the other hand, uh, integrationist approaches would be those uh, reforms that respond to diversity through institutions that transcend cross-cut and minimize differences. And here, for example, we have the commitment to encourage and facilitate integrated education in Northern Ireland's 1998 agreement. So we have these uh, two different kinds of outlooks on the purpose and the direction of cultural reforms in peace accords. This doesn't mean that each accord takes only one of the approaches, Uh, different approaches. So both accommodationist and integrationist reforms might appear in the same accord. Um, More often, some accords lean more towards an accommodationist approach than an integrationist approach or vice versa. But what we wanted to find out was uh, whether these different approaches to cultural reforms could contribute to keeping violence low after the signing of a peace accord, in which sort of context they might do so, mainly on the basis of the fact that previous research had uh, highlighted uh, that accommodationist approaches are very beneficial in separatist and territorial conflicts rather than in other types of conflicts. And also we were interested in thinking about ways in which they might uh, do so, might help uh, the resilience uh, and success of a peace accord over the long term. And what were the main findings of your research? 
so our main finding is that accommodationist cultural reforms are correlated with lower levels of post-agreement political violence. And this relationship is statistically significant. So in other words, when accords include reforms that uh, as we define them, ensure that each group has the public space necessary for it to express its identity through culture, we observe less post-accord violence. And this really confirms a lot of the current arguments on the reassuring effects of accommodationist approaches for ethnic and separatist conflicts. So we have relatively recent literature, most recently King and Sami arguing that there is a very powerful reassuring effect of recognition and accommodation of identities in ethnic conflicts. So this is not particularly surprising. What we found surprising is that this effect also applies to non-ethnic and non-separatist conflicts. So we had to think of uh, mechanisms beyond this idea of reassurance. And what we suggest uh, in our paper and in our research is that the beneficial impact of accommodationist cultural reforms is actually due to a reputational effect. Um, In other words, uh, we suggest that Accommodationist cultural reforms, regardless of the conflict context, give leaders some symbolic resources that help them consolidate their control over their rank and file, prevent rebel or political party fragmentation, prevent leadership challenges, and so help stabilize politics and facilitate the implementation of the accord in the immediate post-accord phase. Yeah, and our hypothesized reputational effect also explains why we find a link between integrationist cultural reforms and increased post-accord violence. So this is because integrationist cultural reforms do not help uh, establish and trench the reputation of negotiating leaders in the uh, negotiation and post-accord phase, which is a really, really fragile one. And we find that this negative effect is especially significant in separatist conflicts. So we came uh, to to these findings on the basis uh, of uh, the statistical analysis of uh, this broad PAIC data set looking at 290 peace accords from 1989 to 2017. But then we were interested in probing it a little bit further by looking at a specific case study. And so to further explore whether the reputational effect hypothesis actually makes sense in real life, we looked at Northern Ireland's 1998 accord, what is known as the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement, both in terms of its negotiation and also in terms of its aftermath. And we we looked at the the case study through archival material, memoirs of negotiators and politicians, as well as uh, news documents. And all these documents really confirmed that accommodationist cultural reforms had a very powerful reputational effect during the negotiations of the agreement and also in its immediate aftermath. This didn't apply to any specific group. It applied both to the nationalist parties, particularly Sinn Féin, because it was responding quite strongly to uh, nationalist preferences for the inclusion of Irish language rights in Northern Ireland, but also it applied um, to unionist parties, uh, including the UUP, 
which during the negotiations came to insist to include into the agreement some provisions to encourage and facilitate the language of traditions of Ulster Scots, which were seen at the time and increasingly are seen at the moment as the counterpart to Irish language rights. These provisions were not abandoned after the peace accord. In fact, they became increasingly entrenched and they were further strengthened eight years later in the St. Andrews Agreement. What we see on the other hand is that the representatives of both conflict parties were distancing themselves quite explicitly from integrationist provisions in terms of trying to promote approaches to culture that transcended the boundaries between nationalist and unionist traditions. And so their distancing resulted in some clauses of the peace accord being included only at the insistence of some minor cross-community parties. And the main example here would be the clause to encourage and facilitate integrated education, which was included at the insistence of the Alliance Party and Women's Coalition. What's also interesting is that beyond uh, distancing themselves from these integrationist provisions during the negotiations, the main representatives of the conflict parties also distance themselves from these provisions in the aftermath of the accord. So provisions for the encouragement and facilitation of integrated education were never determinately implemented in the context of Northern Ireland as uh, uh, established by a high court judgment quite recently. This is really interesting because I know that for some people it might seem that accommodationist cultural reforms could entrench us versus their mentalities and therefore would fail to address the underlying causes of a conflict. Do you think this is a fair criticism? Absolutely. This is uh, what a lot of the literature calls uh, the mobilization effect of cultural reform. So the idea that um, accommodating different expressions of culture helps the mobilization of groups and uh, um, entrenches their separate identities and uh, over the long terms leads to the resurgence of conflict. However, in our analysis, we don't find any evidence of this effect in the short term. And we think about the short Um, about five years after the signing of an accord. And we don't find any similar effect in the medium term either. So 10 years after the accord. What we find in the case study of Northern Ireland is that perhaps in the very long term, these accommodationist cultural reforms might entrench mutually exclusive identities and identifications and also foster mobilization when the former representatives of conflict parties um, tie their reputation very closely to the destiny and success of these accommodationist cultural reforms. And this is something that, as I mentioned, we observe when looking at Northern Ireland in terms of, for example, debates over the displays of symbols and emblems that really culminated in uh, controversies over the displays of flags, uh, which led to violent riots in 2012. Uh, You might remember that. But also more recently, there have been long-standing debates over 
uh, a potential Irish language act, which have polarized both political and public opinion in Northern Ireland uh, along uh, the lines of unionists and nationalists. Yeah, so it is important to keep in mind, let me add, that it is complicated to study very long-term effects through quantitative analysis. And the reason for this is because there are a variety of additional situation, facts, happenings uh, that come into play, which means that there are a number of additional variables that you need to consider and uh, additional sets of data that you need to have available in order to perform a quantitative analysis, meaningful one. So, for example, the Brexit process has altered the parameters of debates in Northern Ireland, as an example. So, in order to assess the very long-term impact of different types of cultural reform, it is more feasible to adopt a qualitative approach through case studies. It's more feasible, it's more practical. So, this is something that we actually hope to do in our next project. But ultimately, what we find when looking at the short and medium term, both across different peace processes worldwide and in the case of Northern Ireland, is that accommodationist approaches to cultural reform seem to reassure groups of their future status and cultural security, but also strengthen the reputation of leaders. They prevent leadership challenges, factionalization, which are the root causes of a lot of post-agreement violence across different conflict types. So this result appears to be robust for the short and medium term. What do you think the main implications of this finding are? Uh, In a nutshell, cultural reforms matter and should be investigated more thoroughly and employed more consciously and carefully in the design of peace accords. Yeah, I I agree that there is a particular value to employing particularly accommodationist cultural reforms to entrench the reputation of negotiating leaders during and immediately after peace negotiations. So this is something that hasn't been really thoroughly considered in the past, but uh, we do think that mediators and negotiators should think of uh, cultural reforms and especially accommodationist cultural reforms a little bit more systematically, either in conjunction with more traditional forms of uh, autonomy and self-governance, such as uh, decentralization, autonomy, federalization, especially in the context of separatist conflicts, but also as a mechanism in their own right to to strengthen the reputation of um, leaders during the fragile negotiation phase. And this could be done across all conflict types. Where would you hope that future research on culture and peace agreements focuses? Right. So I think there are a couple of very, very interesting questions that are closely related to the research we've carried out and that we still need to answer and we hope to answer in the next um, project. The first one remains, uh, uh, why do some peace accords include cultural reforms and others don't include cultural reforms? There is very, very little research determining what contexts give rise to the inclusion of particular cultural reforms in peace accords. So that would be a very interesting question to explore. But also, as we mentioned throughout this conversation, is um, the very long-term impact of different types of cultural reforms. So the the huge question over whether um, accommodationist cultural reforms do have a mobilization effect over the very long term, whether integrationist approaches to cultural reforms uh, help uh, mitigate um, 
and that transcend cleavages between different groups over the very long term. So the hope is that we will start exploring these two core questions in our next project. But beyond these two questions, there is still a lot to learn about how cultural provisions interact with other contextual variables and the context of conflicts, such as, for example, the type of political system that you put in place after a conflict, the underlying clauses of conflict, uh, the different types of actors involved both in the conflict and in the negotiation phase, as well as regional and uh, more economic and social factors. So this is something that we would like to think more about in the next few years, but I guess uh, there will be time for that. Perfect. Well, this is really interesting. And thank you so much both for joining me today. And we'll look out for future research in this area. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. If something caught your attention, moved you or helped you in some way, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast and leave a review. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode, or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thanks for being here. We hope you'll join us again for another episode of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series soon.